0: pick up where we left off several months ago in our study of Matthew's gospel. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the end of Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses 31 and following. And we're going to go ahead and read through those verses, and then we'll come back and take a closer look, and then we'll proceed on to Matthew chapter 26. But let's start in the right way, asking the Lord's blessing that we might understand these things aright. The Lord be with you. Let us... Gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake, amen. Matthew chapter 25 is where we're picking up, as I said today. We're going to start at verse 31. Uh, this is the end of the section that we finished with the last time we were together before we took a break. And it concerns a subject that I think in many people's minds is um, discouraging, uh, unnerving, um, but one that I think is important for us to examine. So Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him, he will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those who are on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I think it's important for us just to remember where we are at this point in the the narrative as Matthew presents it to us in the story of Jesus' life and ministry. So let's just do a brief review. Uh, We're just gonna go back to Matthew chapter 21 and bring you up to speed, because we are really in that final act of this great and climactic drama of Jesus' ministry on earth. Uh, Back in Matthew chapter 21, you'll recall that Jesus entered Jerusalem for the very last time. Uh, All of the gospels give a disproportionate amount of space to just the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, The Gospel of John in particular um, gives a disproportionate amount of space to just the last seven days of Jesus' life. There are over 20 chapters in John's Gospel, and yet what's interesting is that nearly half of those, fully half of those, are given over to just the last seven days. Now, when you consider the fact that Jesus ministered on this earth for three years, and the Gospel gives over half of its narrative to just the last seven days, that tells us where the focus really is. So here we are in Matthew chapter 25, but we are just, over the course of the past four chapters, just studying the last few days of Jesus' time on earth. So a great amount of effort and energy is put into these last weeks as far as the gospel writers are concerned. So Matthew chapter 21 records Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Again, it was his last visit to the city. We know that Jesus went to Jerusalem on any number of occasions, at least three that we know of. And he generally went up at the time of the great festivals. This was typical of most Jews. He went up for the Passover. But this is the last time that he's going to go to Jerusalem. And he enters the city in a very dramatic way. Jesus presents himself in an unambiguous way as the Messiah in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. From what we can gather about Jesus' ministry from the Gospels, It appears that Jesus traveled most places by foot. Uh, He always entered um, cities and towns on foot. But on this particular occasion, oddly enough, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem mounted, we're told, on the back of a donkey. Now again, this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and it's helpful to remember what had happened just before this triumphal entry. Uh, This is one of the reasons I encourage you not just to read through Matthew by itself, but to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John simultaneously. uh, Because some of the events that are described in John's gospel throw light, for example, on the events that are taking place in Matthew's gospel. Uh, For example, we know that by this point in Jesus' public ministry, the huge crowds that had followed him early on, those huge multitudes that you found up in Galilee, the 5,000, for example, that Jesus fed with the fish and the loaves. We know that by this point in his ministry, toward the end of his ministry, those crowds are for the most part dissipated. We're told that the people became frustrated with the implications of Jesus' miracles and what those meant in terms of him being um, the Lord, the King. And we're told that many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. But what's interesting is that when you get to Matthew chapter 21, all of a sudden those crowds that have left are back. There's pandemonium. Jesus is entering the city. They're tearing the palm branches from the trees. They're taking off their cloaks. They're throwing them in front of the donkey. And they're shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Uh, The word Hosanna means save us, save us now. So all of a sudden, Jesus is popular again. And we ask the question, what accounts for that dramatic change? Well, if you read john's gospel john chapter 11 and following what you realize is that jesus had performed a great miracle some would say the greatest of his miracles he had raised lazarus from the dead now there are two other people that are recorded that jesus actually raised from the dead in the gospels one was jairus's daughter jairus was the synagogue ruler you recall that the girl um, was sick and jairus sent for jesus and jesus decided to come Uh, But he was delayed along the way, and the little girl died. And when Jesus arrived, the mourners had already gathered, and he put them all outside the house, took a couple of his disciples and the girl's parents, and he went up to the upper room, and he took the little girl by the hand, and he said, Talitha Kume. It means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately, we're told, the heart began to beat again, the the body began to warm, and the little girl sat up. Uh, It was a dramatic event. And the other occasion in which Jesus raised somebody from the dead was the widow of Nain's son. We're told that Jesus was making his way into the village of Nain, and there was a funeral procession making its way out of the city. According to Jewish custom in the first century, when a person died, they had to be buried before sundown. So when you died, you were buried in the same day that you died. So this boy had just died, uh, not... um, The situation was not the same as with Jairus' daughter. She had died just moments before. He had been dead perhaps for several hours, but nevertheless, they're making their way out of the city and Jesus comes along and he sees them. And he recognized that this widow is going to be bereft of her son. And in those days, widows were oftentimes left to the clemency of those who were um, compassionate and kind. Otherwise, they would oftentimes starve or be left destitute. And so Jesus comes and he raises the son. Uh, He stops the funeral cortege and he goes up and he touches the body and he raises the boy from the dead. It's more dramatic than the raising of Jairus's daughter. But then you get to John's gospel and all of a sudden Jesus raises a third person from the dead and it's the most dramatic and sensational of all of these resurrections. And it's because Lazarus has not only been dead and dead for a few hours, Lazarus has been dead. He's in the grave, and the body has started to decompose. And furthermore, on the other two previous occasions, the resurrections had taken place for the most part in private. Again, in the case of Jairus's daughter, there were only four people basically in the room, two of the disciples and the girl's parents. In the case of the widow of Nain's um, son, uh, that would have been a very small cortege. It would have only been a, a gathering of maybe just the immediate family. But we're told that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was a very public affair. Bethany, where Lazarus lived, and Mary and Martha, his sisters, lived, was a little village just outside of Jerusalem. Today, it's just a suburb of Jerusalem. It was just a little village outside of Jerusalem. But Mary, Martha, and Lazarus came from a very prominent family, and we're told that large numbers of people traveled out from Jerusalem to comfort the sisters in the loss of their brother. So there were lots of people there. And Jesus, we're told, went to the tomb and he called Lazarus out. And you know the story, Uh, the dead man came out, all wrapped up and Jesus said, untie him and let him go. Now, this was a very public miracle. And the next event that John describes in his gospel is Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem. So Jesus has just raised somebody from the dead somebody who'd been in the grave for days. The people all witnessed this, including some of the scribes and the Pharisees, that is to say the Jewish religious leaders. And now Jesus is setting his face toward Jerusalem and he enters the city mounted on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Everybody understood very clearly what Jesus was doing. In an unambiguous, no mistake kind of way, Jesus was presenting himself as the Messiah. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. It's significant, first of all, because up to this point, Jesus had kept his true identity a secret. It's what theologians sometimes refer to as the messianic secret. You may have noticed that at several points in the Gospels, Jesus would perform a miracle, and then he would say to those who were the witnesses to it, don't tell anybody about it. That was the case with Jairus' daughter. He told the parents once the girl had been restored to health and, and, and life, he said, Don't tell anybody about this. And he had said the exact same thing to his disciples earlier in this same gospel. Now, keep your finger in Matthew chapter 25 and turn back to Matthew chapter 16 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 16 tells the story of Peter's great confession. Now, you'll recall, Jesus had taken his disciples outside the borders of Israel proper to the north, to Caesarea Philippi. It was predominantly Gentile territory. And there against that backdrop of paganism and emperor worship, Jesus asked the disciples a question. He said, who do men say that I am? And everybody had an answer. Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're one of the prophets, some say you're Elijah, etc. And then Jesus got very personal and he asked the disciples, he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that was a great confession, and Jesus praised him for it. But look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 20. But then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So up to this point, Jesus had been keeping his identity a secret. We have a similar situation in John's gospel, where there is this repeated phrase. The phrase is the hour. In John chapter 2, Jesus is attending a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, and they ran out of wine. And we're told that his mother came to him and said, you need to do something about this. And Jesus' reply to Mary is this. He said, woman, what does this have to do with me, my hour? has not yet come. And that's a phrase that we find repeated throughout the fourth gospel. Well, that phrase, the hour, was referring to that moment in time which was going to be the pinnacle of Christ's ministry. It was the purpose for which he had come. But what is interesting is that you get to John chapter 12. All throughout the gospel, Jesus is saying, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But in John's version of these events, when you get to John chapter 12, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. We're told that a group of Gentiles, that is outsiders, Greeks, came to Jesus and wanted to see him. And when Jesus heard that the Greeks were coming to him, he replied, my hour has come. So the point that I'm making here is that up to this point in his ministry, for almost three years, Jesus has let a very limited number of people in on who he really is. He's divulged his true identity to a relatively small number of people. Now, many people were guessing that he might be the Messiah, but Jesus had never overtly said that. He had kept it to himself, and probably for a very good reason. Everybody had expectations as to what the Messiah was going to be like and as to what the Messiah was going to do. And the primary expectation was that the Messiah was going to come as some sort of military or political leader and drive out the oppressing Roman Empire. Well, Jesus had certainly come to be a savior. He had indeed come to be a king, but he had not come to be that kind of a king. In fact, on one occasion, we're told the people were so intent on making Jesus a king that they wanted to take him by force. So there was a very good reason for Jesus to keep his true identity to himself until the moment came, the right moment for him to be revealed, until that hour had arrived. And in Matthew chapter 21, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, on the back of that donkey, having just raised Lazarus from the dead, everybody knew that he was revealing himself as the true Messiah. And as that great entourage is making its way into Jerusalem and the people are shouting and tearing the palm branches, we're told that the people of Jerusalem, the people of the city, as they see this great procession making its way toward the Golden Gate, they ask the question, who is this? And the answer that is given is, it is Jesus the Messiah from Nazareth. So Matthew chapter 21 signals Jesus' announcement to the world that he is indeed the Messiah. Now, what had the Messiah come to do? If he hadn't come to drive out the oppressing Romans, what had he come to do? Well, once Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, he performs a number of symbolic acts that are meant to identify his function as the Messiah. The first thing he does in Matthew chapter 21, as you know, is he cleanses the temple. He comes into the temple precincts, the the court of the Gentiles, and he drives out the money changers, indicating that the religion, second temple Judaism, first century Judaism, had become a corrupted religion. It was all about buying and selling of religion. It had nothing to do with grace. And so Jesus drives out the money changers, a very symbolic, dramatic act. The second thing that he did, that the disciples witnessed, was Jesus cursed the fig tree. The fig tree, you'll recall, he's making his way outside of Jerusalem back to Bethany, and the following day he's making his way back into Jerusalem, and he passes a fig tree, a fig tree that was in leaf but had no fruit on it. And because it had no fruit, we're told that Jesus had cursed the fig tree, and when the disciples are making their way back into the city, they see that within the short span of 24 hours, this perfectly healthy tree had withered to almost nothing. And this was to symbolize the fact that anybody that has religion but it has no fruit, in other words, it's not really making a difference in the life of the individual or in the life of the world, it is a worthless religion. That was what Jesus was saying about Judaism. And so by all of these acts and by this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus is signaling his final final entrance into the city, yes, but also his final break with the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, The screen says his signals his final break with Judaism. That's a little misleading. Uh, Jesus was not making a break with the faith of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he certainly was making a break with the Jewish religious leaders, namely the scribes and the Pharisees and the way that they understood the faith of the patriarchs. So Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem Uh, is his way of declaring his messiahship. It is also an event that signals his final break with the Jewish religious leaders. It's also an event that signals a change in the focus of Jesus' teaching. Uh, From this point forward, Jesus is going to stop teaching the crowds in general, and the Jewish religious leaders in particular, and instead he is going to focus his teaching almost exclusively on the disciples. It's almost as though the people have hardened their hearts toward him, and we do know that they did. Uh, From the moment that he entered the city, all of a sudden, the attitude begins to change. Those shouts of Hosanna in the highest in the short span of only about six days become shouts of Crucify him. So the people's hearts have become hardened. They've been poisoned by the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus stops teaching them in an overt way and begins to focus his attention almost exclusively on the disciples. And what is the the main thrust of that teaching? Well, it's a number of things. The first thing is this, the kingdom of God has arrived. When we first started studying the gospel of Matthew, one of the things that we pointed out is that one of the recurring themes throughout this particular gospel, the first gospel, is this notion of the kingship of Jesus Christ and the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. John the Baptist very early on in this gospel told the people to repent. Why? He said, because the kingdom of God has arrived. Jesus would pick up this refrain in his own preaching shortly thereafter. And again, he would call on the people to repent. Why? Because he said the kingdom of God had arrived. So in these final teachings that Jesus makes to his disciples, he emphasizes the arrival of the kingdom of God. Second thing he emphasizes, and he does this on two separate occasions, he emphasizes the fact that the king is going to be killed. The third thing he emphasizes is that the king is going to be raised, Matthew chapter 20, verse 18. Then he goes on in a series of parables to talk about the king returning to bring judgment. That's Matthew chapter 24. And then he emphasizes the necessity of the king's subjects being ready for that judgment. So that's the thrust of Jesus' teaching as he enters the city of Jerusalem. It's aimed primarily at the disciples and it emphasizes the arrival of the kingdom, the death of the king, the resurrection of the king, the coming judgment of the king who will come in glory and majesty and the necessity of the king's subject being ready for that great day. And that sort of brings us up to speed with where we are today. So that was probably like drinking out of a fire hydrant, um, but it's really important for us to set the, the tone for where we are. As I said, Jesus is teaching the disciples. He's doing that primarily by means of parables. Now, we've talked about parables before. I pointed out in a sermon just a couple of weeks ago that this was Jesus' primary means of conveying messages to his disciples and even to the people. Um, One commentator I pointed out in that sermon um, described Jesus' parables as being like a scorpion. He said, at first glance, they appear small and benign, but upon closer examination, they prove to have a serious sting in the tail. And tail here is spelled T-A-L-E. And you certainly see that in the parables that Jesus proclaims to his disciples in these latter chapters. In Matthew chapter 25, for example, he speaks of the wise and the foolish virgins, five who were ready, five who were not. Uh, Later on in the very next chapter, in the very next um, parable that comes along later on in the same chapter, he speaks of servants being entrusted with talents and investing those talents and what happens to those who fail to invest those talents. And we said that the purpose of all of these parables is to tell the disciples to be ready, to be ready at any moment. He's reminding them that it is not enough to merely hear the gospel. It's not enough to merely have responded to an altar call. It is not enough to merely have an admiration for Jesus Christ, an affection for him. What it does mean, he says, is to have a new birth, a new perspective, an entirely different worldview which shapes your entire life. And that brings us to this final teaching that we have before us today. And you might say the most dramatic of all Jesus' teachings. It's sometimes referred to here in Matthew chapter 25 as the parable of the sheep and the goats. But there is a sense in which it's really not a parable at all. It has parabolic elements to it, but it's really not a parable. It's just a description of the coming judgment. But the significance of it, at the very least, is this. It is the last recorded teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Jesus may have taught other things that we don't know about. We do know, and we've noted this before, the Gospel writers were very selective in terms of the material that they chose. Uh, The Gospels tell us that Jesus did so many things that if they were all written down, the world could not contain the volumes. John, in the latter part of his Gospel, makes it very clear that Jesus did many other things that he was not recording in his book. He said, but I have recorded these so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the Gospel writers make it very clear they were not setting out to write down everything that Jesus did and said. They were being selective. They were editing the material in order to make a purpose. But the very fact that Matthew having done that decides to record this as the last of Jesus' teachings is very significant. It tells us that the subject of this last teaching is of the utmost importance, and we need to pay close attention to it. Now, as I said, when we started, Part of the problem with this particular teaching, this parabolic story about the sheep and the goats, is that it deals with a subject that most people don't like to think about. And a subject that I think many people would say seems to be inconsistent with the teaching of the New Testament or with the character of Jesus Christ. Uh, many people have been raised to believe that, yes, there is a God of judgment and a God of wrath In the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we have a new God revealed. It is a God of mercy and love and grace. It is the Jesus, meek and mild. But what is shocking is that when you actually look closely at the Gospels themselves, one of the things that you discover is that Jesus talked more about judgment and more about eternal punishment and hell than any other figure. Indeed, the very words that we're going to look at in just a moment come from the mouth, from the lips of the Savior himself. So we can see that there is a progression here. Jesus' teachings in these final days after he enters Jerusalem, these teachings that he is pouring out to the disciples, they are becoming more and more intense, more and more somber, uh, more and more critical. So, the first parable we talked about, the wise and the foolish virgins, it was about an impending judgment. You need to be ready because if you're not ready, you're going to be shut out. The second parable was about the need to be ready. This third story is not about an impending judgment or even the need to be ready. It's a description of the judgment itself, it's a description of exactly what's going to happen to those who do not. No Christ, who are not ready, who have not prepared themselves for the arrival of the King. So let's just go ahead and read through it, just a few verses again, because it's very dramatic, the imagery that Jesus uses here. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that is to say, when the Messiah comes back at the end of the age to set the world right, we all recognize that the world in which we live is an imperfect world. If you don't think that the world is imperfect, if you don't think that the world is in trouble, just watch the news. As a matter of fact, really all you needed to do is watch that presidential debate the other night to see how imperfect the world really is and how troubled the nation and the world really is. Well, the good news is that one day the Messiah is going to come back and everything that is wrong, everything that is broken, everything that is unjust, everything that is foul will one day be set to rights. And that's what the judgment is all about. I pointed out to you before, judgment is not necessarily a bad thing. Judgment can actually be a very good thing. If the judgment is in your favor, that's not condemnation, that's vindication. Judgment is only a bad thing if you're guilty and the judgment is against you. But the point that Jesus is making is that a day of judgment, a day of reckoning is indeed coming. And he's going to describe what it is like. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It's a symbol of authority and sovereignty. And before him will be gathered all the nations. That is to say, every soul. And he will separate people. Separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep at his right hand, but the goats on his left. This is what's referred to by some biblical scholars as the great assize, the great separation. Jesus is saying that there will come a day when there will be a separation, a separation between those who are in a right relationship with God and those who have refused his free offer of salvation. Now. The whole point, again, of this teaching is that Jesus' followers, his disciples, are to be ready. How do you know if you're ready? This day is going to come, he says, like a thief in the night. He says that earlier in the same gospel. How do you know that you will be ready? Well, Jesus offers a number of tests here. One of the tests, he says, the true test of discipleship is love. It is love. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and and you gave me drink i was a stranger and you welcomed me i was naked and you clothed me i was sick and you visited me i was in prison and you came to me and the righteous will answer him saying lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you and the king will answer truly i say to you when you did it not when you did it to one of the least of these my brothers you did it to me. Jesus is saying that the true test of discipleship is love. And when he talks about love here, Jesus is not talking about just some sort of emotion. He's talking about a self-emptying, a self-sacrificing love, a love that thinks not of self first, but of the well-being and the welfare of others. Uh, The critical phrase here is as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is not talking about every single human being at this particular point. Now, on another occasion, he does. Someone came up to Jesus and asked him the question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor. You shall love the Lord your God, first of all, but then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, he said, hang all the law and the prophets. So on that occasion, Jesus was talking about not just his disciples, but about everyone. Because then the the question became, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, of course, told the parable of the good Samaritan. But in this particular instance, Jesus doesn't say neighbor. He said, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is saying one way that you can know that you are a true disciple is if you love your fellow Christians. You know, it's sometimes been said of Christians that we pray on our knees on Sunday and on our neighbors every other day of the week. And that's tragic. It's also been said that the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. I can't tell you the number of people that I have known over the course of my ministry who have given up on Christ because they have been mistreated by people who claim to be Christ followers. And so Jesus is saying that one of the great tests of true discipleship is a love, a love for your fellow believers. Now, if you turn to the epistles of John, to 1 John in particular, uh, he gives three tests of true discipleship. He said, you'll know you're a true discipleship, first of all, if you believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That's the heart of the gospel, the incarnation. Jesus became one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The second thing is this, that if you obey Christ's command, Jesus himself said that. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But the third test that John in his first epistle gives as a true test of discipleship, he says, is if we love our fellow believers. Uh, This is one of the things, quite frankly, that worries me uh, about this virtual world in which we find ourselves as a result of COVID. I know that many of you have been blessed by having the services online, and they are an absolute necessity. And I am so grateful that we have Zoom and we have the capability of being able to broadcast our services. And we have ordered all of the equipment so that we can now live stream the services. And as soon as that equipment comes in, we're going to be able to broadcast the services in real time. So you can actually watch the services and you don't have to wait until the evening to see them recorded. So we're very thankful for all of that. But one of the things that worries me is that it really does separate us out. As much as it is wonderful to be able to witness the worship, and in a virtual way engage in the worship, it's not the same as coming together and being together. I think that's one of the reasons why at the beginning of this Bible study, everybody is so happy to see each other's faces and communicate with one another. It's because we need one another. And it's why the New Testament warns us about neglecting meeting together. We need each other. And sometimes it's true, Christians can be among the most irritating people in the world. Sometimes when iron sharpens iron, there are sparks. But we need each other. This is the means by which God takes us, shapes us, fashions us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He does that within the context of community. Uh, I probably told you this story before, but it's, it's worth repeating. There's a story that's told about a man who lived in Scotland, in the highlands of Scotland. And uh, he hadn't been to church for some time. And his minister decided that he needed to go and pay this man a call. And so he made the journey up into the highlands of Scotland. The man lived in in an old stone cottage. He was isolated by himself. It was a cold and blustery day, a dark gray day. They often are up there in that portion of Scotland. And the minister arrived and the man welcomed him, brought him in and they were sitting in front of a blazing fire. And at one point, the minister asked the man why he hadn't been to church. And the man replied that the church was filled with hypocrites. The church was filled with hypocrites. Obviously, the man had had his feelings hurt at one point or another, somebody had insulted him or who knows what, but at any rate, he was convinced that the church was filled with hypocrites. And furthermore, he says he could worship God just fine up there in his little cottage, as well as he could do in any kind of church or cathedral. Well, the minister didn't say much at all. He just sat there for a moment. But then he went over to the fireplace. He picked up the tongs. And he reached in and he pulled out one of those glowing embers, the bottom of the fire, and took it out and placed it on the hearth. And then he sat back down and the two men just watched that glowing red ember die and turn black. And then the minister, without another word, picked up the tongs, took that cold, dark ember, placed it back in the bottom of the fireplace with all the glowing embers, and before long, it was glowing along with all the rest. And the message was conveyed. That is where we grow. We grow in fellowship with other believers. God is using your fellow Christians to shape you, to transform you ever more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He's not going to do that if you're in isolation. And so a true test of discipleship is if you love your brothers. Now they may irritate you, as I said, they may get on your nerves, but the bottom line is that you need them. If you cannot love your fellow Christians, How can you possibly love your neighbor, anybody else out there in the world? And so Jesus makes it very clear that the judgment will depend in large measure on how we care for each other. We will be judged by what we do and we will be judged by what we fail to do in terms of loving one another. Now this may make some people a little uncomfortable I mean, Jesus seems to be saying you're going to be judged on the basis of what you do. Aren't we saved by grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor, and not by works? Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2? Well, yes. But Paul also goes on to make the point that while we are saved by faith, it needs to be a demonstrable faith. It's not just intellectual assent. It's a faith that makes a difference in your life. It's the same point that James makes in his epistle in chapter 2. He says, faith without works is dead. It's not a true and lively faith. It's not a demonstrable faith. And so Jesus is saying the time is coming when this world is going to be judged. The Son of Man is going to come back in glory and majesty. He came in great humility. That is true. He was born in Bethlehem in a manger He lived the life of abject poverty, and he was going to die an ignominious death, the death of the cross. But that same one who came in great humility was coming back one day in glory and majesty, and he was going to judge, and there would be a separation. And it's clear that even though he uses the image of sheep and goats, he's talking about people. There's going to one day be a day of judgment, a day of reckoning. And if we hope to enter the kingdom of God, We need to have the kind of faith that is evident by the way we live, by the way we treat other people, in particular by the way we treat our brethren. Now, there are a number of other lessons that we can glean from this final teaching of Jesus. One, and and this is more of a side, it's not really the focus, Uh, but it is nevertheless important. And that is to say that on the day of judgment, the separation will be final. It will be final. There will be those who are welcomed into the kingdom of God, and there will be those who will be not, who will be separated, who will be consigned, Jesus says, to a place of eternal punishment. Uh, Look again at verses 41 and following. Then he will say to those on his left, apart from me, you cursed, Do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I think some people feel that it is improper for us as Christians to talk about the subject of hell. Many people think of hell as sort of an antiquated idea. Um, It's not an idea that enlightened people can believe in. Uh, Furthermore, we're going to see that there are a number of objections to the idea of hell, even within the Christian church. But according to what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 25, we can say this much about hell. Number one, it is a real place. Jesus makes that point very clear. He says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared. At the very least, hell is a very real place. Verse 41 also indicates that hell is a place of separation. I mean, just imagine being separated from everyone and everything you love. How difficult it has been for us in the midst of COVID. And we still have access to people. At least you can go to the grocery store and pass people by on the aisle. At least we can do Zoom. But Jesus describes hell as that place of total separation, complete isolation, separated from everyone and everything. Second thing he says about hell is that it is a place of bad association. You know, sometimes we joke and say, well, um, you're going to be glad-handing with all those people down there in hell, all of your friends. But that's not the picture that Jesus paints here. Hell is not a great reunion where we get together and have a good old time with those who are the bad eggs. It is a terrible place. It is a place of association, but it is not an association with your friends It is an association with the devil and his angels. Furthermore, Jesus describes it as a place of suffering. He describes it in terms of an eternal fire. Now, whether or not we should understand this in terms of Dante's Inferno and the rings of hell and sulfur and so forth, those are biblical images. Those are Jewish idioms that are meant to describe a place of suffering and torment. And what makes it a place of torment and suffering is to know what could have been, but what we have rejected. It is to know that we could be with others and we have purposely by our own decisions separated ourselves from others. Now, hell is a serious matter. And as Christians, we have to take it seriously. Now, as I said, many people have objections to this idea of hell. The reasons are obvious. Um, Some people would say Jesus is simply trying to frighten us into the kingdom of God. I don't think Jesus is trying to frighten anybody into the kingdom of God. My experience is that um, guilt could be a very powerful motivator, uh, but fear is not. I don't think Jesus is trying to frighten us into the kingdom of God, but he is trying to forewarn us. If you knew that there was a fire in a theater, you have to yell out fire. Now, it'd be a terrible thing to do if there wasn't a fire and you cried fire, but if there was a fire, if you knew somebody was in peril, let's put it this way, if you knew that somebody was driving along a road on a dark night and a bridge was out ahead and you saw them coming down the road, wouldn't you do everything in your power to stop them, to prevent them from driving off that bridge to their destruction? I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, There is going to come a day of reckoning. There is going to come a final separation, a great assize. The sheep will be separated from the goats. You want to make sure you're with the sheep because if you are not, there will be judgment. There will be destruction. Jesus is standing there on the side of the road, as it were, and he's crying out for us to stop. That's what the word repent means, incidentally. It means to turn around, to come back. Jesus is calling for his people to repent and return to the Lord, to the bishop and shepherd of his souls. Jesus is not trying to, uh, to, to frighten us, he is trying to warn us. Some people object and say, well, hell is inconsistent with God's goodness. If God is good, why would he send anybody to hell? I think my answer to this is twofold. First of all, I would say, who are we to say what is good and what is not? God defines what is good and what is acceptable. How could we say that this is inconsistent with his character? How can mere creatures say that to the creator? And the second thing is this, if there is to be any justice in the world, a judgment is absolutely necessary. If we're ever to know that those who are engaged in child prostitution are one day going to be held accountable, there has to be a judgment at some point. If if the Stalins and the Hitlers of the world are ever to be brought to the bar of justice, there has to be a judgment at the end of time. So hell is not inconsistent with God's goodness. Now, ironically, some will argue that hell is inconsistent with God's justice. And when they say it's inconsistent with God's justice, what they really mean is that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. All right, we do terrible things here on Earth, but we suffer for those things for all eternity. I mean, after all, I mean, this life is what? 50, 60, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years if you're strong? Do you mean to tell me, they say, that the sins we commit in this temporal existence will have eternal consequences? That just doesn't seem to be right. You know, if a kid um, does some shoplifting and steals a piece of candy from the grocery store, we don't give him life imprisonment because of it. The punishment has to fit the crime, and some say that, that this kind of punishment that Jesus talks about here in the latter part of Matthew chapter 25 is inconsistent with real justice. How do you answer that? Well, you answer it by saying it's not inconsistent with real justice. Because while the crime takes place in this life, the crime that is committed is against an eternal deity. The crime that is committed is against an eternal God. And because it is a crime or a sin against an eternal God, it is therefore punishable for eternity. Now, again, there are two ways of looking at this. You can look at Jesus' description of the final judgment, and you can say, wow, that is cruel, or you can look at it and see it as good news as a warning. I don't know how many of you have ever been to um, the great Catholic Basilica that's in Washington, D.C. It's a basilica that's located on the campus of Catholic University. I always tell people that if you go to Washington, D.C., there are two churches that you absolutely must see. Um, One of the churches that you should see is the National Cathedral, which sits up on Mount St. Albans. It's a remarkable building, just extraordinary. One of the last great Gothic cathedrals built in the world. It's an extraordinary thing to see. And I encourage you, if you ever go to Washington, D.C., to take the time to go through it. The symbolism in that cathedral is just moving. It will lift you up, transcend you. Um, But the other great church that I encourage people to go see is the National Shrine, the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. That's a mouthful. But the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception is located on the campus of Catholic University. It's very different uh, from the National Cathedral, which is a great Gothic cathedral. This is built more in a Byzantine style, a Byzantine and Romanesque style. And when you go inside, you're not going to see statues like you would see at the National Cathedral. What you are going to see, however, is that the entire church is covered from floor to ceiling in mosaics. Those tiny little painted tiles that are put together to form a great picture, thousands upon thousands of them. And the most impressive of all of these images is the image of Christ seated in majesty as the judge of the living and the dead, which is right over the apse above the high altar. It is a magnificent image. You can probably Google it and see it online, but it shows Christ seated there on the throne. He's holding an orb in one hand. He's holding a scepter in the other. He's got a crown on his head. Behind him, there are these storm clouds coming in, and there are lightning bolts, and it symbolizes the king seated in majesty, ready to judge the quick and the dead. And I remember seeing this for the very first time when I was a student in seminary and standing there beneath that and listening to the reactions of people as they made their way beneath that huge image and looked up at it. There were always one of two reactions. People either said that is awesome or they said that is terrifying. And the image of Christ as judge of the living and the dead is going to be one of those things for each of us. Either you view this image that Jesus gives here in the latter part of Matthew chapter 5 as a terrifying prospect, or you view it as a day of vindication, a day of salvation. But how you view it depends entirely on your relationship to Christ, and your relationship to Christ is illustrated by the way you love your fellow believers. That's the point that Jesus is making here in the latter part of this chapter. So it's a powerful, powerful image that Jesus gives us here. And it closes out this section of Matthew chapter 25. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 26 and the plot to kill Jesus. Uh, this becomes the heart of the gospel. What we are going to study in this next chapter, chapter, really the next two chapters, is the heart of Christianity. I tell people if you understand what takes place in Matthew's chapter 25 and chapter 26, if you comprehend those events and their significance, whatever else you don't understand about Christianity, if you understand the events of these two chapters, you understand what it means to be a Christian. This is the heart of it all. Everything, the whole narrative from the beginning of Matthew the whole way through, has been moving toward this great and climactic moment. This is the hour for which Jesus Christ has come. And that's what we're going to take a look at next week when we come back together again. We're going to take a look at the plot to kill Jesus. And in particular, we're going to take a look at three individuals and their reactions to Jesus. We're going to take a look at the reaction of Caiaphas, who was the high priest, served as high priest for 18 years. We're gonna take a look at the reaction of Judas Iscariot, who of course betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And we're gonna ask the question, why would Judas have done that? Because it's interesting, Judas had been with Jesus for three years. He had been witness to some of the greatest events in all of history. He had seen Jesus turn the water into wine, perhaps. He had seen Jesus certainly walk on the water, raise people from the dead, feed the 5,000, and yet here he was at the end of Jesus' ministry, betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. Why in the world would Judas Iscariot do that? And what does that mean in terms of our lives? And then finally, we're going to take a look at one other person's reaction to Jesus Christ. And that is the reaction of this woman, Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, the man who had been dead, but Jesus had raised from the dead. Her reaction is very different from that of Caiaphas and that of Judas Iscariot. And so we'll take a look at Mary and we'll see why she reacted in a very different way from these other two individuals. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for this latter part of Matthew chapter 25, it is a somber message that Jesus gives to his disciples. This is a message about judgment and impending judgment an inescapable judgment, but a judgment that need not be against us. It can be in our favor. Lord, grant us the grace to embrace Jesus Christ, to embrace him completely, fully, and to show that faith in him by the way we treat others. In particular, by the way we treat our fellow Christians, how we give for each other, how we give of our time and our treasure in order to build up your church. By our love, they will know that we are your followers. So grant us the grace, Lord, to do that. Help us to heed this message and to show the world what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who was the one who loved the world, even unto his own death. Grant us the grace to do likewise, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.